try to trace all the cases. So that's where. Is there some noise? I'm sorry. Yeah, it was. It's my cat <laughs> who woke up. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Welcome to All About That Base. We have returning champion Shuating Cho here with us. She is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics in the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Shuating, welcome back. Hi, so happy to come back again. And we also have our co-host, Jenny Chen. Hello, Jenny. Hello. I just wanted to start out by checking in with you guys and seeing how you're doing in your lockdowns in Boston. Maybe we'll start with Shua Ting. Yeah, um, so I've been working from home since the beginning of March, you know, because I'm working in the infectious center. So we took action earlier than the general public. So it's been like about one month and a half being home. It was stressful at the beginning because uh, I've never got used to working from home by myself for so long. Uh, but generally, it's getting okay now. Um, and I have extra projects on coronavirus uh, together with our um, you know, center have a lot of projects going on. Uh, we work remotely very well at this point. And uh, it just feels like this coronavirus not only impacting many other things, but also impacting people around us. Like today I heard the bad news is that one of my colleague's father uh, in New York City died from COVID-19. So this is just something we have to remember is that it's a thing related to everyone. Yeah, wow. Jenny, how are you doing? Um, I'm also all right. I think we're all lucky that we get to continue to have our jobs and get paid during this time. Um, the weather in Boston's starting to pick up. I've been using my bike to explore the suburbs of Boston. I have explored Medford and Winchester, and I have many more suburbs to go. Nice. Um, yeah, so just hang in there. And Quinn, you um, maybe have the most interesting updates of all three of us because you have been on your emergency room rotation at UCSF. How has that been? Yeah, so the the way I actually ended up on this rotation is that one of my co-interns is about 20 weeks pregnant and she was slated to work in the emergency department and I volunteered to switch with her. And this was a bit before we kind of knew what kind of caseload we'd be getting in San Francisco. And so I was a bit nervous, but as it turns out, the surge really never came in San Francisco. And I think this is a credit to our mayor, London Breed, who was one of the first people to declare a state of emergency for the city. And we locked down at such a low number of cases. So I actually saw a number of, they call them like persons under investigation. So people who are coming into the ED who might have coronavirus, but probably have an alternative explanation for their symptoms. So I saw many of those people, only one actually confirmed positive case the entire like two and a half weeks that I was working there. It was interesting because you had to wear a mask and eye protection the entire time you were there. So the N95 started to like really hurt the bridge of my nose. Oh. <laughs> and so I had to switch to like a different kind of mask. And also there's so few people coming into the emergency department these days. They're operating under a much lower census in general. And so there's also this concern that 
people who are out there who are sick? Or the question is, are there people out there who are sick and who are not coming to the emergency department? Or are these things like strokes, heart attacks, congestive heart failure, exacerbations, are those just not happening for some reason? So yeah, a lot of interesting things going on, but thankfully the case burden in San Francisco has been very low. Yeah, so I've I've definitely been watching the numbers pretty closely. I built a little shiny app, which we can share on our website to follow the COVID cases across the US. And I have been really marveling at how well the West Coast has seemed to um, flatten the curve and control their cases. And the East Coast is certainly not looking like that, which I think brings us to a lot of the questions that we have for Xue Ting, our returning champion, as you say, Quinn. So Xue Ting, could you give us an update at this point about how many viral genomes have been sequenced and what their geographic distributions are around the country? Yeah, so so we have a database called the GaySide. It's a global initiative on sharing all influenza data. But now we are also sharing the coronavirus sequences on this database. So as of April 17th, we had more than 10,000 sequences in the database, which is amazing. Uh, that's a total for global. And uh, it's, it's just amazing how fast the data has been generated because two weeks ago I was collecting the data. It was about only like 4,500 sequences there, but in two weeks doubled, the number just doubled. So by single country so far, the U.S. submitted the most, uh, mostly from Washington, uh, from uh, California, and also the eastern side, like New York State. Uh, Massachusetts also has many sequences there. So it's just like the hotspot has more sequences deposited in the database, which makes sense because we have more samples. So what have we learned then so far? What's the current picture about how the virus got into the U.S. and how it's spreading? If you check the NextStream platform, that's the one I mentioned before, it's a nearly real-time tracking platform of this viral genomes uh, comparative analysis. You will see that the transmissions are globally connected. But when you, we zoom in to see the introductions into U.S., we see that there were multiple introductions driving the U.S. epidemic. And the earliest was in January. There were multiple paths for the virus uh, to reach the U.S. Um, for example, there was a direct introduction from China that occurred in the late January, and there were multiple introductions from the European epidemic that occurred during the course of February. So we saw a shifting of the major sources because we take different you know, inter intervention measures. We shut down the flights from China at early stage, but we didn't shut down the flights from Europe until very late. That's where the source of the virus is shifting a little bit from China uh, to Europe. But generally, when you look at the big picture, it's global connected, it's intensely connected. And for the hotspot cities, like let's say Seattle, Chicago, and New York, where are they getting single introductions or multiple and from where? So we have to look at different stages of this outbreak in the US. So at early time, 
Like we mentioned last time, we talked about the story in Washington state, right? That's where the local transmission has been detected first, the first batch of the states. So that's even before we started massive testing in Washington, uh, based on the first two sequences in Washington, we inferred that the virus transmission has been local community transmission for weeks. And also we found that some of these sequences is clustered with later from New York, from California, from uh, Minnesota, from Wisconsin. So basically it's saying the Washington state's virus is spread to these locations occasionally in March. So basically inside the US, uh, the, at early stage, Washington state spread a lot of the viruses to different locations, but later on there are also many other uh, isolates from globally that connect together based on the genomic data. Got it. And what about New York? What was the origin? It sounds like some other cases might have come from Washington State, but right. where else did they? Do they have a single introduction like Washington State? No, or? they have multiple uh, introductions based on their New York City data. They're not only from Washington uh, since since the beginning of March. They have multiple introductions from global countries. Not to go through every city in America, but I do want to ask about Boston, partially because we live here and a lot of our listeners live in Boston, but also because I felt like Boston and California started their you know shelter in place uh, relatively close to each other, but by population, the number of cases in Massachusetts is much worse than in California, and I was just curious shifting if there's any idea or handle on why that might be. Yeah, so if you remember, what's the first batch of these cases? They were at a conference, right? There was a Belgian conference. So that transmission is mainly from Italy. So that's more probably one of the famous cluster of how the outbreak takeoff in Massachusetts. But consider the situation that normal conference business meetings, gathering, church gathering all the time. Uh, before we, we kind of do the social distancing and shutdown, we, ex- we may expect there are more uh, clusters like what happened in the Belgian conference. So that's how uh, the things took off in Massachusetts. So considering that we have the first case actually in end of January, that was the imported cases from China, but we didn't do anything until like uh, mid of March. That was about two months. We didn't do anything on testing. We didn't do the case tracing. We didn't do uh, close contact tracing, all the things. We didn't do it. So we don't know. Um, But based on the example of Belgium took off uh, the outbreak, there may be multiple uh, local transmission clusters like that uh, to initiate this outbreak. We'll move on to the the next section of our update, Mm -hmm. which is to talk a bit more in depth about the genomics and what we've learned about the now 10,000 or so whole viral genomes that we have. So just a a quick recap, what is the, the genome size, number of genes, and what are the few most important genes in the virus genome? Yeah, um, so the full length of the SARS-CoV-2 is about 30,000 nucleotides. It's the largest genomes among RNA viruses. It's a non-segment genome. It means like it only has one full genome in, inside the virus, but which encode at least 12 functional proteins. Among those, I want to highlight one that we're going to talk a lot more later because it's related to many other things. So it's a spike glycoprotein. That's on the surface of the virus. It's all the little specks on the virus, if you look at the picture of the virus. So for viral function, 
this protein contains a receptor binding domain, which helps the virus enter human cell and initiates an infection. Then for human immune response, it contains important antigens to stimulate the immune system in human body to produce protective antibody. So I've seen a lot of attention in the media talking about different strains of coronavirus and trying to say, oh, maybe this one strain is more lethal in Europe, but the one in U.S. is less lethal, etc. And so I just wanted to ask what the scientific evidence was about their existing different strains of coronavirus and how much that matters clinically. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Basically, a strain is a genetic variant or subtype of a pathogen. But strain is unfortunately an overloaded scientific term at this point. There are many people talking about strains and they're using actually sometimes just misleading. So here we have to differentiate the concept of strain and variants. So in many uh, many situations, every unique virus genome will be counted as a separate strain. But if we use this criteria, we will see thousands of strains for the SARS-CoV-2 virus because we already sequenced so many genomes. But almost all the changes in the genome will do very little to affect the viral function. So I would more prefer to call this unique viral sequence as a genetic variant here. So then another definition of strain is defined as a functionally distinct virus genotype. So basically, it's grouped in a little bit. It's grouped some of the variants into, into one group. That's where we call it strain based on what? Based on the functional distinct. So, but what's very tricky is that we cannot know this without doing experiments. If one genetic variant behaves differently than the other, uh, especially when there's only a small handful of genetic change between them, for example, there have been many mutations we observe, but actually it's only 11 mutations to proteins that are widely distributed uh, for in the population. So these are potentially functional distinct variants that deserve you know, attention and experimental, uh, even clinical follow-up. So this could be studied where like uh, through the cross neutralization assays to say if your serum from recovered individuals respond different to these two variants or to groups of the uh, mutations we saw. This takes a lot of work to define. So that's why for now, when people talking about strains, they are mostly only based on genetic information. And people have different definitions on how they group them. And once they group them, they start calling it a strain, which is may not be true that they are distinct function. So, I will use flu as a more mature example here, because this may be easier for you to understand what's strain, what's the real strain we call when we try to, um, to try to understand the viral genome and the also immune response together. So let's think about just H3N2. That's one of the signal flu A uh, each year. So each season we have to change the vaccine strain. Did you notice I used what? Vaccine strain, right? So we have to change the vaccine strain each season for this H3N2. It is because the genetic drift um, happened for this virus surface protein. Um, It's also happened to the surface protein that's causing their substantial antigenic change. So that's where we based on their cross-reactivity 
based on the antibody cross-reactivity and also the antigenic distance with experiments to define that's a new strain that's where we have to update the vaccine. So basically you see the point is that when you define strain, there has to be enough genetic distance and also whether they cause functional difference, like whether the immunity from the previous strain still cross-reactive with this cousin one. That's where we define these separate strains for flu. That's why we have vaccines, vaccine strain for each year. So just to summarize, strain typically does mean uh, genetically distinct viruses that have functional or behavioral differences. Like, so the change could make them more or less virulent, or in the case of flu, that you need an entirely new vaccine to cover for them. But in this case, we are using it and talking about coronavirus, but we're, we only have the genetic data. We don't know if any of the observed changes actually affect virus behavior or virulence. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So we have no ex many experimental data to verify that's a separate strain or not. That's why I'm more tend to say it's a variant of the virus rather than a strain of the virus. So in the the RNA genome, where are the mutations occurring? We can see that they're not evenly distributed. It's not saying okay, every set has the same probability to mute. That's not true. We saw some of them are at the beginning of the genome. That's a ORF protein. That's one of the functional protein for the virus to replicate their genomic data. But also we saw a peak on the uh, spec protein. That's where we care more because the spec is more related to the immune response of our human body. So we saw it's not even distributed and then we saw some hotspots on some on different genes. So it sounds like there are mutations that are occurring in the spike protein, which is what typically our immune system will recognize. Based on conservation of those sites, can we uh, make a guess as to whether those are functionally important mutations? Partially, yes. So I can tell you a general picture of what we saw uh, for this uh, spike protein in coronavirus. Um, so that also can answer the question, if you get infected with one strain, if we have a definition on the strain that based on the genomic difference, will you have immunity against others? So if the mutation on the spike protein changed a lot and changed their fun like part of their key sites on the protein, that's where what you produced before by previous infection, the antibody produced before cannot recognize it anymore, then you have no cross-immunity or only partial cross-immunity. But so far, based on the mutation rates of the SARS-CoV-2, it's slower than flu, like we said, it's two or, time, two or three times uh, slower. And also, we see that seasonal coronavirus we have seen the coronavirus, the four other types of seasonal coronavirus has been in human for, hun for hundreds of years. Based on the previous data on the seasonal coronavirus, we can see that the virus will take years to have the virus escaped from the cousin immunity. So we, so far, we won't worry much about how fast the virus actually changing on the spike because it will take time for them to, to escape the immunity. So escape what the immunity in human, right? But we do not have immune pressure in the population yet because we're still not infected. Most of people still not infected. So we lack 
one of the factors that other virus have is that the immune pressure from the population to select the strains. So mm. that's where, when we think about this, how the virus change, how fast it change, what results are escape from previous immunity, it has to be two factors, the viral mutation, the human immunity. So far we have no herd immunity. And uh, so it will take years to have the virus escape from the cotton immunity. And it take time to, for us to establish the immunity first. So, so far we won't worry much. Got it. Okay, so it sounds like given that it mutates three times more slowly than influenza, the single perhaps amino acid changes that we're seeing within the spike protein are likely not sufficient in order to provide a escape from immunity if you have been infected. And then the other part of the equation, like you mentioned, was that right now, because so few people have been infected with the virus, there's no um, population-based selection pressure from human immunity to select for variants of the coronavirus that escape. Right. So I, I wanted to move on to talk less about the biology of the virus and more about the epidemiology. And it seems like we do have some evidence that social distancing is working, but Shoting, you could probably speak to that more. And then I think the main question people have at this point is, how are we going to reopen the country given that it looks like this coronavirus is here to stay? Yeah, so the first part of the question is, is the social distancing working? Yes, it is working. It's working very well from previous evidence in China and some evidence from a few countries in Europe now, like in Germany, Italy, we saw the past peak with their social distancing and they're running down on their, uh, on their numbers. And also from the cousin changes in several states in the US. Uh, for example, we know the first wave of this outbreak started from uh, Washington state. So we have some data from uh, King County in Washington state. Some research correlated Facebook mobility data with effective reproduction numbers, that's RE. RE is a real-time estimation of secondary infections under some control measures. So they did analysis to see the correlation between the Facebook mobility data and also the RE. Not surprising for me, but surprising for many people how obvious it is that it, we saw that uh, along with the reduced mobility between people, the RE is reducing as well. So the reality, like from epidemiology observation from countries and also the data, both tell us that the social distancing, distancing works. Okay, so what's the next question you were asking more uh, people asking most is that what's the next step after social distancing works what's the next step how are we going to reopen the country so so far i have to say we don't i don't think anyone has found a good answer for this the reason is that i have a few things you have to know is that the pandemic is far from done it is still very early stage i think the most of the population in the country remains susceptible as long as you encounter the virus you will still get infected so so the goal of the constant restrictions it's not to solve the problem, but to solve the more accurate problem of keeping the numbers of patients from exceeding the healthcare capacity, like we talked last time, right? You don't want to have a quick, big peak there, but try to flatten down the curve to not over uh, overburden the healthcare system. So oh, one thing I actually want to mention here is that when you're asking whether, oh, is a virus strain is lethal than others, 
people based on the number in Italy compared with some other locations saying, oh, Italy is more lethal because they have like over uh, like around like 12 percent of death. That's which is very high. Right. Um, so I have to say that the case fatality rate is more related to other factors. Uh, when the virus is extremely similar, actually they are very similar based on their uh, short history of the virus. So the death is not solely depending on the viral variants, age structure, economic status, living conditions, healthcare um, system, uh, health education, prevention measures, it's all matters. So it's basically, in Italy we saw that they have an older age structure and also they, they are surely overburdened the healthcare system for a long time. That's why we saw a high case fatality there, that's a situation we want to avoid. And the thing is that in the US, even now we flatten the curve, we still see the case fatality rate is increasing. At the beginning, it's only about 1%, and now it's about 5.3%, which is getting higher. So we saw the shutdown works, but it's still a severe problem is that we're going to still have many people die. And the 30 day lockdown actually already saved many, many lives. Even now, we still see many people die. So the big question is that what we do next? Can we just open back to normal? The thing is that we we don't know. We have no good answer on this. Based on the 1918 pandemic, people relaxed the restrictions very quickly. We saw a second re research of the cases, and we back this back to the same problem uh, in a short time. So the thing is that if we relax the restrictions, we expect to see the second surge even bigger surge of the cases because we can have a fall and winter. That's where the virus can be more, you know, advantaged by the weather, by the conditions. So we're expecting a second surge for sure. And on the other hand, we cannot always keep social distancing or restrictions in place because it's economically disastrous, right? For some countries, they may not even be able to do the social distancing because with social distancing, have no food. So we're in a very bad dilemma situation, I have to say. Um, but probably we could do two things before we have a vaccine. One proposed strategy to have serological testing. It's that where if people have been infected, they will have protective antibodies and they can go back to work. Um, but now I think the serological testing is still more in a research perspective before it is widely used, because we still don't know much about the immunity to this virus. We don't know how long the immunity will last. We don't know how protective these antibodies are. So it's still under research. We hope this can have a good answer and allow us to do the serological testing and allow people to go back to work. Another thing we can try is to do what China is doing. They, uh, so in China, people are very cautious to open business. They require people to take all the prevention measures still, like hand hygiene, wearing masks. Like China now still close borders, no flights from international. Uh, still have some some flights from international, but they don't allow the foreign uh, foreigners get into the country anymore. They only allow the citizens get back to the country and then do quarantine, do testing. So testing, tracing, and quarantine are still in place in China. It's not totally back to normal. It's still cautious of doing the business. So I would say we, we have to try some things at some point. Uh, we don't know whether there's a better strategy to reopen the country yet. Um, so one thing people hesitate to say is that what they don't know. Actually, we have to know what we don't know. Here, we don't know. That's the answer. Mm. I was just going to go through and kind of summarize the things that we learned from this update. So I think with regards to the data, it sounds like we have 10,000 
viral genomes, most of them coming from epidemic hotspots. And uh, for lineage tracing of the virus, it sounds like there have been multiple introductions to the United States, both from Asia and Europe. And then for the mutation rate, that the virus is actually mutating a little bit slower than we originally estimated, still three times slower than influenza, and that there are some mutations in the spike protein, but they're unlikely to actually cause meaningful change in our ability to generate immunity. And then for our epidemiology, that sounds like social distancing is working, but we do not have a good answer for how to reopen the country. Does that sound like a good summary? Yeah, that's a good summary. Only correcting one thing here is that the virus, the estimation on the viral mutation rate is slower just because uh, we have more data available to reduce uncertainty from the beginning. So that's why uh, we are more, so I would say it's more close to the true uh, mutation rate of the virus than at the beginning. Got it. Well, Shueting, thank you so much for being our three-time returning champion. We'll have to check back in in a couple of weeks. Hopefully we don't have to check back in, but if we do, it will be a pleasure as always. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we are all done this soon and uh, we can get c- together in person. Yeah. Uh, next time we'll probably talk about serological because that's a part we yeah. maybe the key, to, maybe the key to reopen the country, but we yeah. don't know yet. Stay tuned for our next discussion on serology. So Jenny, I've noticed that we just kind of end our podcast and there's no outro. Do you think we should record an outro? Have we gotten to that stage yet? I don't know. What what would we record? I don't know. You know, like, this podcast was produced by Jenny and Quinn and, um, uh... Well, I guess that's it, but do you think we need advertisers? We need some advertisers. Um, I mean, we have like six followers on our SoundCloud. I don't know who we would advertise to. Well, maybe we need to do the thing where they like send out a survey and then we'll find out their demographics. Like maybe, maybe some biotech companies, you know, some of that dark money. (laughs) Okay. Um... I'll use my data analytical skills and look into it, Quinn. Yeah, find out the p-value for those six people. (laughs) I'm pretty sure one of them is a porn bot also. (laughs) Evelyn Wilkinson. Well, well, maybe there are some advertisers out there who cater to porn bots. And I mean, but like literally, if someone wants to send us like $25 to read a message to our listeners, get at us.